Well, good morning, everyone. Let's pray together as we begin this time of preaching and learning. Almighty God, thank you again for the opportunity that we have to come into this place, into this house of worship. Thank you for the hearts and souls and the sacrifice and the gift that those that have come before us have made uh, that were faithful uh, in their giving and in their service uh, in order to erect structures that would allow us even a place to come in order to worship God freely in this country. So we thank you for our service people and for our president. Um, We thank you for the sacrifice of many who have come before us that have laid down their lives and had committed it to faithful service of their country. And so God, today in this place and in this time, and as your people, we come together here because you said that this house would be called a house of prayer. And so we pray, Lord, that the word would be alive and sharper than any two-edged sword, that it would be pierce all the way down to the marrow, that it would destroy any arguments that stand up in pretension against the truth of your word and the truth of who you are, Lord Jesus. They would be destroyed, that lives would be changed and transformed, and that your angels in heaven would sing of your glory as we do for the amazing and mighty power of who you are and what you accomplished at the cross. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been in this Equip series, and I just wanted to do a quick review And I wanted to start off in a place that's really the beginning point. If you look up at the slide there and you'll see the fire of hell. And if you can't make it out, there's people that look like they're burning in those flames. And it's a pretty powerful image and superimposed over the entire image is the word need. I think sometimes we forget that that's the beginning place, is that there's a need. Of humanity is that oftentimes we gather together and we do the religious ceremony and we do the ritual of church, but we forget the fact that there's this need of human beings, the pinnacle of God's creation, who were created to function, to have a relationship with our Creator, to be stewards over creation, and to love one another. And because of our rebellion in Adam in the the Garden of Eden, all of those relationships were fractured. Not just simply broken, not just simply damaged a bit, like a can of beans at the grocery store, but they were utterly destroyed in our sin. That God said that on the day that you eat of that fruit, surely you will die. As I've shared here before, and I've shared with students over at the Christian school, is that oftentimes we reinterpret what that means to die. Say, well, if I don't have a pulse, then I'm dead. That's not what God said. He said that when Adam and Eve ate from that fruit, that they would die, that the consequence would be death. And it happened. They were separated from God. And that's death. And see, all of humanity, what we have to realize is that all of humanity, it's a doctrine that we call original sin, comes into this world separated from God. We don't really like to grapple with that. We like to look at little kids when they come out and they're all snuggly with their mama wrapped up in the hospital blanket. We say, oh, look at that little angel. Look at that beautiful little baby. And maybe they are. But they're still separated from God. 
And so as Christians, we understand the need. Jesus certainly understood the need, and that's why he went to the cross. There's a slide up there that reads, Jesus didn't come to make us morally upstanding citizens of hell. You may look at that and say, I don't really understand what that means, so I'm just going to click the switch and kind of put my brain in neutral for the rest of the time until we get to have coffee and donuts afterwards. Jesus did not come to make us morally upstanding citizens of hell. Let that soak in for just a moment. When I was teaching over in Ghana, Africa on mission trips, oftentimes the students, they were adamant about the idea of morality. Not saying that morality isn't important, but see, oftentimes we substitute morality for a relationship with Jesus Christ. If I go to church, if I'm nice to people, if I put on my fake smile, if I learn how to golf clap, if I learn how to hold a door for someone, if there's a piece of trash on the ground. See, that's all the kind of stuff that we hear in the prosperity gospel sermons from the prosperity gospel preachers. Just be nice. Just be nice and do the right thing. But they leave out the idea, the doctrine, the concept that we are separated from our Creator and what it requires is a reconciled relationship through Jesus Christ alone. See, Jesus did not come to make us morally upstanding citizens of hell. So we've been going through this series. We came up to a point where Jesus called his first disciples. He calls Peter and Andrew in chapter 4. And he says to them in verse 19, Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And we're hanging on to that, that picture of Jesus calling us, his disciples, to be fishers of men. Because if we let go of that and we forget, what does it look like? The question I asked the little kids earlier in Poetry Pals, how do you know if someone is really a Christian? And oftentimes we say, well, if they go to church. And I would argue that our churches are full of people who are going to be surprised at the temperature in hell. Say, well, if you, if you read your Bible, if you go to small groups, if you're a nice person, or the best one is if you're just a good person, the subjective standard that we all get to determine on our own, right? Well, what makes you a good person? If it's just about being a good person, then why did Jesus come and go to a cross and die and say that that was for us to reconcile. Why did he say that he alone was the truth, the life, and the way? And no one comes to the Father but through him. And so after Jesus calls these first disciples, and he goes around Galilee preaching and teaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness, he calls these disciples off to the side. There's a huge crowd following and as chapter 5 begins, Jesus separates these few disciples, pulls them off to the side, and he begins with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We've been through the Beatitudes. And Jesus wrapped it up with saying in verse 13 of chapter 5, You are the salt of the earth. 
You are the light of the world. And the point we said a couple of weeks ago is that salt and light function. If they cease to function, Jesus even said it, if salt is no longer salty, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything. So what good is a, air quotes, Christian that doesn't fish for men? Because that's what Jesus called us to do. If we no longer have salt, if we no longer function, if we're no longer the light of the world, if you look inside of your net and there's nothing there, or you don't even know what your net is, you don't know how to use it, are you really a Christian? Pastor, those are some hard questions. We'd rather get to the coffee and donuts afterwards. And last week, in verse 17 of chapter 5, Jesus cleared everything up and he said, Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. See, that's the first place that our minds go. Jesus, you died for my sins? Well, that means anything goes now. That means I can do anything because I've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And if I couldn't do anything to earn it, I certainly can't do anything to keep it. Both of those statements are true. But the question is, were you ever really a Christian in the first place? Hmm. What's in your net? See, God's only standard is 100% righteousness. Jesus wrapped up the section from last week, and he said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. And we just skirt right over that. We go around it, we go above it, we go under it, we close our eyes, pretend that it's not there. What does that mean, though? Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. See, they had it down, right? They had religion down to a science. The garments, the sanctuary, the synagogue, the tassels, the phylacteries, all the externals, all the special days, they had it down to a science. They even added what they call the oral law, the oral traditions. So on top of the hundreds of laws that are found in the Bible, they thought that's just not enough. It's not enough because it led to the nation of Israel going into exile. So clearly it's not enough. So we've got to add some more stuff to it. They had it down. And then Jesus cleared it all up and said to his disciples that he pulled off to the side unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. See, they thought because Abraham was their father that they were good. And Jesus said, nope, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because you're still relying on externals. You're still relying on self-righteousness. You're still relying on the subjective moral standard, I am a good person. And if God is love, then he has to accept me. Wrong. God is love, but he's also a God of justice. God's only standard is 100% perfection. Unless, unless, unless what, 
you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's the backdrop upon where we are today. As we go into this, one of our core values as a church is this idea of desperate dependency on Christ. Why would that be one of our core values? Well, because it's true. Have you found yourself in a position today, this week, this month, where you are desperately dependent on Jesus? And I would challenge many of you here and answer that for you and say no. See, what we do is we kind of get into a rhythm and a routine and a flow. And then when people come along and they say, hey, how are you today? We say, same old, same old, because we got our rhythm clicking. But then if the tiniest little shift of wind comes along, the tiniest little tremor in the ground, my car won't start today. Why do you hate me, God? My printer ran out of paper? Seriously? Right now? The sky is falling! We never find ourselves desperately dependent on Jesus because we say, I've got enough money in the bank. I've got everything figured out. I've got a cell phone. I can call anybody that I need at any time 24-7. The truth is, we're not really desperately dependent on Jesus, are we? Are we relying on Him for every breath at every moment? No. And see, we don't take Jesus seriously when He said, I'm the vine, and you're the branches. And apart from me, you can do nothing. But we go around every day, all day long, doing all kinds of stuff. In our private lives... And the tragedy is in our churches too. In our churches, we fill them full of ministries and programs and productions. And we want people to come in and be proud of how shiny the things are that we have in our church. Man, you guys are killing it with your kids' ministry. Yeah, we are. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I thank, yeah, thank you so much. Are we desperately dependent on Jesus? See what we said, if you remember that picture of the fishermen sitting there with the nets full of fish, is that people in the kingdom function like people of the kingdom. That's where we left off last week. Hey, little kids, are you paying attention? What does it look like? What does it mean? How can you tell if somebody's a Christian? I couldn't hear you. We got one person. Hey, everybody. How do you know if somebody's really a Christian? Love God and love others. Love God and love others. And see, today we're talking about Matthew 5, 21 to 26. And Jesus sets apart this specific part in the Sermon on the Mount And he says that we need to be reconciled. In verse 21, he begins, You have heard it said to our ancestors, Do not murder. Whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says you moron will be subject to hellfire. So... If you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember 
that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar first. Go and be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on your way with him, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. I assure you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Ouch. And I think when we read stuff that Jesus says, we think, well, I've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. I'm good. Everything's fine. I don't really have to do anything. Because then... (gasps) It would be a works-based salvation, wouldn't it? And we know how we as Baptists feel about that. A works-based salvation. Whoever says to you, moron, will be subject to hellfire. See, we talked last week that it's not a new standard. It's not the same standard of the religious elite It's not a lower standard where we get to do whatever we want. It's the same standard that God established from the very beginning. Right relationships with God and with one another. And if we walk around, I don't know, have any of you walked around this week and maybe at some point uttered those words? You moron. Idiot. Can you believe this guy? I find myself all the time. You may say, Pastor, how could you say that? You're condemning yourself to hellfire. I'm being honest. If I'm driving down the road, anybody that drives faster than me is a crazy person, and anyone that drives slower than me is an idiot. And all of you say, I, don't, I would never do such a thing. It's what we do. It's why we feel so good about watching a show like Jerry Springer, right? At least I'm not like those people. The relationships in my life might be a little bit off, but I'm not like those people. And so what we're saying is, you moron, you idiot. And what Jesus says right here, you'll be subject to hellfire. Well, isn't it okay if I just say it under my breath? What if I just think it? Are we trying to reinvent the standard? See, what it means is that there's bitterness and there's anger and there's a lack of patience and all of the things in Galatians 5, Jesus says through Paul what the fruit of the Spirit looks like. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Ouch! Self-control taking every thought captive, seizing it, and making it obedient to Christ. Anger ultimately reveals our lack of faith in God. I don't know if you realize that or not. Read the story of Cain and Abel to the kids in Poetry Pals. See, is that Cain was walking around with bitterness in his heart. Cain was walking around and he had a younger brother, Abel, And Abel was walking around on clouds. God really digs you. I'm the youngest of four kids, and I've heard from all of my siblings, Mom and Dad like you best. Well, it's true because I'm the best kid. Y'all are supposed to laugh at that. 
It's not true. I don't believe it. But my siblings, when we were younger, would walk around and say, Mom and Dad love you the most. And so I think Cain was walking around looking at his brother Abel saying, God loves you the most. Well, maybe it's because he wasn't harboring sin and bitterness in his heart. And that when God gave him an opportunity to go out and bring the best stuff as a gift, as an offering to God, he didn't sit there and think of it as like a teenager when you ask them to clean their room. Oh, the humanity of it all! I actually have to pick up my own stuff? You're not okay with mold growing on my door? You sure it's not okay for me to wear the same underwear for a week, Mom? Come on, teenagers. Parents aren't really asking that much. I love the picture that I've seen out there that it shows the kid that's like eight years old and he's pushing the lawnmower because that was me and underneath it it says, Go Fund Me circa 1980s. It means that in the 80s there was no Go Fund Me. If you wanted money, you didn't go to mom and dad, that you went out and you did something. You washed a car, you mowed the lawn, and you did what mom and dad told you to do. Now today, it's like you got your screen stuck up to your face, and if your parents ask you to put it down for two seconds, it's as if somebody removed your life support. Come on. Anger, bitterness, ultimately reveals our lack of faith in God. It happened to Cain, and he thought that the solution, instead of reconciling his relationship with his brother, Abel, that the better idea was, I'll just pick up this thing and I'll smash his head in. And then if he's dead, then I'm going to be the favorite by default. How's that working out for you? See, the first thing that Jesus says here in this session, as he's speaking, he says, if you're offering a gift on the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, do y'all realize that that's not the person who feels offended? I see some really wide eyes looking at me right now. That's not the person who's offended. That's the person who's committed the offense to someone else. If someone else has something against you, that means you're the offender and they're the offended. Everyone in here says, I've not offended anyone. Have you ever offended someone? ever in your life and see if you're walking around with that relationship not reconciled there's a problem we say well you know jesus says here that if you remember so since i've ignored it since i've practiced filing it away and sticking it and sweeping it under the carpet i don't remember it anymore thank you pastor kevin for bringing that back up you're welcome See, because if you're walking around ignoring fractured, broken relationships, it means that you got a problem with this one too. We can't just ignore them. We can't sweep them under the carpet. If you're offering your gift on the altar, you remember that your brother has something against you, you've offended them, leave your gift in front of the altar first, go and be reconciled second, First you leave your gift, then you go and it doesn't say send them a text message. It doesn't say send them an email telling them why it was their fault, why they're the idiot, why they offended you. It doesn't even say to ask for forgiveness. 
What it says is be reconciled. Pastor, I don't like the way you're talking to us this morning. I'm just reading the Bible. I'm telling you what Jesus said. And I don't want people walking around thinking that they're okay with their relationships with others and it causes a hindrance in your relationship with God and then you come to the end of your life and then the next thing you know, you're standing there and the thermostat is really warm and you say, well, I thought because I did... Jesus, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do really cool stuff at Poetry Baptist Church? And Jesus says, away from me, you evildoers, you workers of iniquity, the lawless. I never knew you. Does he really know you? Does he really know you? Leave your gift first. Go and be reconciled. And then he says, come and offer your gift. What's interesting is that Jesus takes the same words that Cain and Abel used, that the scripture used back in Genesis chapter 4 about an offering. It doesn't say come and bring your sacrifice. See, there's a distinction there. See, if you have to sacrifice something you feel like you're giving something up it's oh it's a, it's a it's a sacrifice but see a gift is something that when you have a little kid connor just celebrated a birthday and when christine and i were thinking about what we were going to get him for his birthday we didn't sit there and say well gosh i don't know if i really want to get him anything that's you know we could really put that money towards the light you know, or the electricity or the or the plumbing you know or that thing that we need fixed or you know I don't know. That's going to be a real sacrifice. Connor walks around and he loves his Pokemon. And so we were looking around and we found a little Pikachu. And so we we were so happy and excited that we could present that to Connor as a birthday gift, not as a sacrifice. You ever sit down and you write out your check and you sit there kind of under your breath? (laughs) Poetry Baptist Church taking my money. One of those people think they put it in the basket. See, it says that God loves a joyful giver. If that's what you're doing is grinding your teeth when you're writing out your check, take it back out. Let me know. Let the finance committee know and we'll tear it up because we don't want your money. What God wants is you to be a joyful giver. It's to take your gift and bring it to the altar and lay it down and just think, golly, I just wish there was a little bit more I could have given. There's just a little bit more I wish I could have given Connor on his birthday to make it more memorable, to make it sweeter, to make it a greater memory. Jesus says that's what we need to do with our horizontal relationships with one another. Don't come and bring stuff and stick it in the basket thinking that you're doing him a favor when there's broken relationships out there. If you're going to be a fisher of men, you need to learn how to be reconciled. Hey, everybody, how do you know if somebody's a Christian? Man, y'all sound enthusiastic this morning. Hey, everybody, how do you know if somebody's a Christian? I don't know if y'all have read the book in the Bible. This is a test to see whether you're awake or not. 
The book of prevarications. It's a very popular book in the Bible. It's the book in the Bible where we make up stuff. We kind of add in, you know, well, Jesus said this, and I'm going to put a little something, something on it. That's the book of prevarications. If you, well, mine doesn't have one, but yours might. It's not really in the Bible. I love giving quizzes over at the Christian school, and sometimes I'll throw in something like this, and I'll get the kid that circles that as an answer from time to time. And I'm not making fun. It just shows me how I can pray. God is okay with my anger. That's a lie. As Dr. Jeffress always says, a lie from the pit of hell. That's where they come from. See, we think God's okay with my anger. God's okay with my anger because... And then we fill in the blank. We fill in the blank with our righteousness, right? God's okay with my anger because I'm right. And see, God knows that that other person's wrong because of what they did. So I get to walk around with this grudge and this bitterness that's kind of floating around in my heart. God's okay with it, right? No. That's God's okay with my anger, prevarication 666. It's a lie. God's not okay with our anger. He's not. Matthew 23, 23, Jesus is talking to the the religious elite, the religious leaders, and he says, yeah, you do some things right. You pay your tithe, but you have disregarded the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. That's like the person coming into the sanctuary and dropping their check off and say, hey, I get to check the box that I'm right with God. And Jesus says, no, you're not, because you've ignored justice, you've ignored mercy, you've ignored faithfulness. And when you ignore those things, see, when we take something that we think is a gift and we present it to God, it reminds me of the idea from the Old Testament where it says, all of our best stuff, all of our best stuff is filthy rags, right? All of our best stuff. So we take something when we're not right with God and not right with others and we just present garbage and trash to God. People in the kingdom function like people of the kingdom. While we've convinced ourselves it's okay to act like citizens of hell, Jesus is unimpressed. We're going to participate in the Lord's Supper today. And the New Testament tells us that God's not okay with us coming, celebrating, partaking in the the blood and the body of Christ in an unworthy manner. But what we've done is we've kind of convinced ourselves that it is okay because we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And if you have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, if you have, if that's a reality for you, then your life looks like that of a Christian. You love God and you love others. The truth is, is that relationships are messy. Offenses are guaranteed. Consider the extremes Jesus endured for you. Now live accordingly. I wonder, when is the last time that you were proactive about reconciling a broken relationship? See, when the word of God comes and it convicts you, how do you respond? It was about maybe four or five years ago, I had left a church that I'd worked at for a short time, and I didn't really leave on horrible terms, but it wasn't the best. 
And about a year after I'd left, I reached back out and I contacted a couple of people on staff at the church because I was convicted by this very idea. This very idea that if we're walking around harboring a grudge and we've convinced ourselves that God's okay with our sin, even though we're in the wrong, and we've offended somebody, and we've swept it under the carpet, and we pretend like it's not there. And God convicted me, and I said, God, I'm going to respond in faithfulness. And it was very difficult. I reached out to three people on staff at that church, and I let them know that I was sorry for my actions. And only one of the three people actually responded back to me. And he responded back to me, and we went down and we had breakfast together one morning, at Cracker Barrel and Mesquite. And we sat down and we talked it out. And at the end of it, he thanked me for being bold enough and faithful enough and obedient enough to cause that reconciliation to happen. And when I got done with that, when that conversation, that breakfast with that individual, and I got back to my car, I was in full-on tears of joy because I had never in my life experienced the joy of reconciliation with another person. See, it requires humility to take that step. And when you do it, you experience the joy on the other side, and then you get to go back to your utility belt or your tackle box or whatever metaphor you want, and you say, now I've got that. I've got it. As a fisher of man, I've got another thing that I can add. Jesus said you better have it if you're going to be a fisher of men. And I really think we all walk around saying, yeah, but no. I don't really need to be reconciled. And why not? See, we insert our excuses here. If you can't figure out what that is, that's a trash heap. And that's where they go. That's where our excuses about not being reconciled, not being proactive about reconciling relationships, we could just stack them on top of the trash heap there. That's where they go. And people say, well, pastor, well, Jesus, reconciliation is hard. It is hard. And I'm going to show you how hard it is. It is hard. See, because if he had never gone to the cross and he had never died for our sins, then we would have no hope of reconciliation with God. And so when we come along with these excuses of like, I don't need to be reconciled, Jesus says otherwise. And just before that, he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the disobedient, those who had disregarded God's word, he says, you'll never enter into the kingdom. You'll never enter into the kingdom. I don't want you to walk around thinking that you're good with God when we don't act like fishers of men.